you have a Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Genesis chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 10 in the black pew Bible. As you're turning there, imagine with me that you, yes, you, were given a promise. A promise from a very reliable source. A promise that would change your life for the better when it was fulfilled. The timeline, however, was not up to you. It was unknown, in fact. It was only known to the giver. Now, surely, you would be profoundly grateful that someone would give to you such a blessed promise. You would likely be quite eager for um, the anticipated fulfillment. And potentially, you would be quite anxious and restless until the promise came to be a reality. Now now imagine that years go by and the promise is unfulfilled. And not a year, not a couple years, a decade goes by. Still no fulfillment. The promise made has not been kept yet. How might you feel about this promise. Sounds good. The promise sounds good, but no fulfillments. Would you doubt? Would you lose heart? Would you give up on believing in the promise? Or would you seek to take matters into your own hands? To move the process along. What might I do to make the fulfillment of this promise happen more quickly? Well, promises are important. And delayed fulfillment of promises may lead to certain doubts, fears, and even problems. As we come to Genesis chapter 15, we come to a pivotal passage in the Abrahamic storyline of the Bible and the the broader storyline of the promise from chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, let me remind you what God said to Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Excuse me, this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, the the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The book of Genesis is tracing for us the fulfillment of this promise. This is referred to as the first gospel, as the ultimate fulfillment of this, this promise is Jesus. It is the offspring. It is the son of God who came to bruise the head of Satan or crush the head of Satan on the cross where Satan bruises his heel, that is, the crucifixion. The passage this morning, we find God's promises again stated. 
we find Abram's doubts. We find God's assurance to Abram and then Abram's faith. As you have already heard, God comes to Abram again. And this is the fifth time in Abram's life that God has come to him. And here in chapter 15, following the, the triumphant victory over the invading kings from the east, we find not, not, a, not, a, um, not a faithful Abram here, not, not a confident Abram here, we find a fearful Abram. And we see it in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your reward shall be very great. Now in these six verses, we're going to see what we're going to, we're going to call three promises. And the first is regarding his safety. But, but here, verse 1 starts with, after these things. And we don't read the Bible only uh, one singular or, or isolated chapter at a time. We read the Bible in the context in which it was delivered. In the context which is delivered, when chapter 15 says, after these things, we understand that he's referring to something that happened previous to that time, which of course would be chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we have the great victory over the invading kings from the east. We have the, the meeting between Melchizedek and Abram and King Bera and Abraham. After all of that, and maybe much more, we find that the word of the Lord came to Abram, here in verse 1, in a vision or in a revelation. And the word vision here is, is usually in the Bible uh, used to, to talk about a prophetic message with the purpose of communicating God's word. And so God's word comes to him in a vision, in a revelation. And it begins with the words, fear not Abram. Now, we're not told that Abram was afraid. Chapter 14 doesn't mention any fear. Chapter 15 doesn't tell us he is afraid. And yet here, the Lord's first words to Abram are, fear not Abram. This tells us that even our unspoken fears are known to God. God knows Abraham's fears. And though Abram was silent about his fears, presumably, at least in the text, God knew about his fears. And he knows about your fears too. Fear, we know in the New Testament, is not from God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Throughout the scriptures, we see a repeated command from God to his people to not fear, do not fear, fear not. Over and over again, we see this command given to God's people. But we may wonder, as God says to Abram, fear not, we may wonder, why is Abram afraid? Why does God need to say, fear not, to Abram? Now, some of us may be naturally fearful people, and so this, this might always apply to us. But why would it apply specifically to Abram at this point? After all, in chapter 14, we saw a great victory. 
We saw Abram moving in, in confidence and in faith and in, in, in attacking, slaughtering four kings and their armies. That's a victory. You would think that, that, that instills confidence. Success should, should cause us to, to, to have greater confidence, we might think. But humanly speaking, what else would we understand here? What might Abram have been understanding? That after warring against these four foreign kings, retaliation might be in the future. A, a real life fear could have been that these kings might come back. I just took what they took, and now they might want to come and take it back or take me out. He has put himself and his family in the crosshairs of possible war. Now, this seems like a, a likely reason for fear, one that we can probably recognize, and one that we see elsewhere in Scripture. We talked briefly last week about Elijah, and Elijah applies here as well. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah on Mount Carmel sees this great victory of the Lord over the, the prophets of Baal as fire falls from heaven and, and decimates the altar. And then the, these prophets are killed. A great victory, a great victory of the Lord. Again, you would think that instills great confidence. Great confidence in the Lord. No reason for fear. But what do we find in the very next chapter of 1 Kings in chapter 19? We see at the threat from Jezebel, Elijah is running away. God had just done a miraculous victory. And now at the word of, of Jezebel, evil, wicked Jezebel, Elijah's on the run. After triumph comes trial. And there are times when our faith is most tested after trial as it is during trial. Some of us are more like Elijah, more like Abram here in chapter 15 than we want to admit. And yet, God has, what God says to us, what God says to them is the same that he says to us. Fear not. Listen to a few passages from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10, verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Whenever we see these commandments to not fear in, in these three examples, there's a reason. God isn't just saying, don't be afraid. Just don't, don't do it. Stop it. <laughs> there's a reason why you don't have to be afraid, he says. Don't fear, you're more valuable than sparrows. Don't fear, I'm your helper. Don't fear, I'm the first and I am the last. I'm at the beginning and I'm at the end. You don't know what's coming next. I don't know what's coming next. But guess what? God already knows. The eternality of God tells us that God's already there. You have a problem today, God's already on the other side of it. 
you don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. That's the invitation of God. It's the invitation of God to Abram here in chapter 15. Abram may have been fearful of these invading kings, but additionally, we see that Abram, or we remember that Abram had given up the spoils of war in chapter 14. The provisions that he had taken back from the invading kings. And was in the midst here of, of doubts about God's previous promises to make him a great nation. That's what we're going to see in just a moment. He has no son. God had made the promise and there's no son. There's no provision, we might say. Yeah, God made the promises. That's true. Yes, he had delivered him in the war. That's true. But we might think with Abram, but what about now? What about now? Almost like a, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yes, you made the promises, but, but here I am. Here I am with, no, with no, no provision. Here I am in potential conflict with, with invading kings. Abram was looking at himself, fearing for his own safety, fearing for his own future. And what, is, what happens when we look to ourselves? We move into despair. If you look to yourself for, for the hope that only God can give, you will be hopeless. You, you, you and I cannot hold the weight of the hope that we need. We don't, we're not enough. We need God. Psalm chapter 42 speaks to despair and hopelessness as the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist is speaking to himself. Why am I downcast? And then his response to this question that he poses to himself is the answer. What's the answer? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Despair, despair is self-reliance, is a form of self-reliance. And self-reliance is the enemy of faith. When I look to myself, for only what God can give to me, I am led to despair because I can't do it. Abram is looking to himself. And in response to his fear, God spoke. Fear not, Abram. What's the rest? I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. We, we see a, a twofold promise here that only God can keep. I am your shield. The first promise is, is protection. It's safety. Ab Abram, uh, afraid of, of, of his current situation, and God says to Abram, don't fear. I'm your shield. And this I am your shield is, a, is, a, is language that we see throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Psalms, in places like Psalm 3, Psalm 18, Psalm 28, Psalm 84, Psalm 91. When God says that, that he is our shield, he says that he is our divine protection. Now, if you've lived long enough, that doesn't mean that nothing ever will, will bad will happen to you. It's not what it means. But it means that God is sovereign over it. That if God chose to, he could prevent anything from touching you if that was his will. He is our divine protection over enemies, over Satan, over temptation, over bitterness, 
Warren Wiersbe says here that, that God's I am is perfectly adequate for man's I am not. I am your shield, right? And we know that name, I am. I am your shield. God is your shield. That's what he's telling to Abraham. And to the Christian, we can understand the same. Recalling who God is, is a worthwhile and necessary practice for the Christian. In a sense, God is saying to Abraham, do you know who I am? (laughs) You're afraid, but let me remind you, I am your shields. The psalmist in chapter 46, Psalm chapter 46 says, be still and know that I am God. The Lord is saying to Abram, know me, know who I am. You don't need to be afraid because you know who I am. Secondly, he says, your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be very great. Abram's provision would not come from the possessions that he took in war. Right? He gave those up. His reward would come from God. God had promised a great nation. And it would be to Abram through God and God alone. At this point, all Abram had was God. And God is saying to him, don't be afraid. I I got you. I got you. And your reward is going to be great. And shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough? Could it be true that that, that the seeming delay of God's fulfillment is for the reason that we would become satisfied in him and not in what he gives Could it be that the, 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 the delay that you may have experienced and are experiencing today in answered prayers or in life the way you think it should be might be that God wants you to be satisfied with him, not with what he gives or not merely with what he gives. He is the reward This is not a consolation prize. And if we think this is a consolation prize, we misunderstand what it means to have God. This is an eternal prize, one for which we long to experience forever in the presence of God. In the the place of, of righteousness. In the place where God again dwells with man in the place where tears are wiped away in the place where there's no mourning that there's no death there's no darkness no sin no shame no conflict no war The reward is God. And here, Abram is learning to be satisfied with that. It's a lesson we need to learn as well. 
being satisfied in God is for our good and brings glory to God. John Piper has written it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we're satisfied in him, when he is enough. Psalm chapter 73, verses 25 and 26 say this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that this morning? Can you agree with the psalmist this morning? Who, whom have I in heaven but you, God? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 24, the writer says this, I have one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What should we be satisfied with other than God? In Christian, we have God. And if we have God, then we have all that we need, all that we'll ever need. Well, to God's affirmation, fear not, I am your shield, your reward will be great, Abram responds in verses 2 and 3. Now, this is the first time that Abram responds to God in, with words, um, in the biblical text. It had been 10 years since God had promised him a great nation back in chapter 12, and yet still no children. And still his wife is barren. God had made a promise to Abram, but Abram was without an heir. And this was a problem for the fulfillment of the promise. And so with his problems, with his doubts, with his questions, what did Abram do? He went to the Lord. Abram prayed. Abram didn't put on a show for God or for anyone else. He didn't pretend that all was well. He didn't whine and complain. Rather, he honestly presented his problems to God. You know that there's a right way and a wrong way to talk to people. Right? We, we, can, we can have the right idea and say it in the wrong way. What we say is important and how we say it is important. There's a right way and a wrong way to talk to any person. A right way or a wrong way to talk to authority or to your spouse or to your children and to God. It's not only about what we say, but how we say it. Because Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the mouth says things. Because of what is going on in the heart. So it's not only what we say, but how we say it that matters. 
And so what does Abram say? Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God. Just stop there for a second. What Abram is saying here, it, it, it could be translated, my Lord Yahweh. Which is to say, God is master and I am servant. Abram is presenting himself not, with, not as the authority. He's not coming with demands. He is addressing God as he should. Oh, Lord God. And what does he say? Now he presents his problems. What will you give, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, or, or look, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Abram here brings his problems to God. He presents his requests, which is good and it's right. And we're invited to do the same in, in a place like Philippians chapter 4. Making your requests known to God. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, casting your cares upon God. Or your anxieties upon God. Or a place like Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me and give me your burden. You're, you're heavy laden. You're weary. You're tired. Come to me. I'll take your burden. You take on to, to yourself my yoke, which is easy and light. This is an invitation that we have as well to come to God with our problems or what we view as problems. Abram knew the promises of God already, and he knew they were unfulfilled. He knew they were unfulfilled, and he knew something else, that they were getting older. Having a baby at their age was unlikely. Abram knew that. Don't, don't think that's lost on him either. You made me a promise of an heir, and I'm looking at this thing saying, I'm, she's past the time. I'm, how is this going to work? This doesn't seem like this is going to work out for us. Abram had a timeline. He looked at his life. He saw a timeline and said, God, we've got to speed this thing up. It's not working. You promised something and the clock is ticking. That is both literal and figurative for the woman, right? Ticking, right? How, how could this ever work? Again, Warren Wearsby says it this way. One of the basic lessons in the school of faith is God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and in God's time. And you and I can't change it. In God's way, in God's time. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. They're higher. And so we can look at our own timeline. We can look at our own life and say, man, God, let's get this thing moving. I don't see how, 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 how this can still happen. And yet God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than ours. Abram wondered, with no offspring, then the only heir I got is Eleazar, which may have been his trusted, his trusted servant. 
That might seem strange to us that that would be his heir, but that was, that was a well-known custom in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia at the time. Well, to this, God then responds to Abram. God goes first, fear not. I'm your shield, your reward will be great. Abram presents his problem, and then God responds in verses 4 and 5 to clarify all of this. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. We saw the word of the Lord already in verse 1. See it again here. This is God speaking. This man, talking about Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In the next book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, uh, there's a great description of God. It's a description that's used multiple times throughout the scripture after this, but this is the first time. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As a parent, uh, sometimes we make promises Promises that we fully intend to keep, but not immediately. We may have a different timeline. Children may not understand that concept. And may uh, persist, we might say, on that promise being fulfilled now. Now, I hope I'm not alone in this next part, but if I am, I'll, I'll own it this morning. The insistence of the child or what we might refer to as nagging, um, may cause a parent to become less inclined to participate in the promise keeping. Not sure if you've ever experienced that. I certainly have frequently. And yet, as real as that is for all of us, thank you, this is not what we see with the Lord. Not only with Abram. In the book of Judges, there's a man named Gideon. God tells him what to do. He says, okay, well, let, let me put out this fleece. And, and if, if there's dew on the fleece and not on the ground, then, then I'm good. God answers it. He comes back. Okay, that sounds great, but let's try it one more time, just so we're sure. Just going to make sure I got the message right. right. And God was gracious to him. In Luke chapter 18, there's a persistent woman who prays over and over again as an example of how we ought to pray. And then, of course, there's you and me. God is not the God of second chances, right? God gives us many more than that, doesn't he? God isn't a one-and-done God. Here, God had already given Abram the promise three times. Chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 7, and in chapter 13. And so we could read this and hear Abram as a complainer. Like, Abram, he already told you. And yeah, it's been 10 years, I, I, get, I get it, but, but he already told you. 
It's going to happen. Why are you continuing to ask? Or in another sense, and in a real sense, we might see Abram saying something that we see in the Gospels. That the man says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because what is Abram, Abram doing before God? He's saying, you made a promise. I believe that you made the promise, but it's not being fulfilled. Help me. Help me understand this. I believe, help my unbelief. And instead of God berating Abram, instead of God saying, figure it out, buddy. I already told you. No, he doesn't do any of that. He graciously and gently answered Abram, and he does it in three ways. Look at in verse 4 again. First, he starts by clarifying the promise. This man shall not be your heir. You're worried about Eleazar being your heir? Let me clarify. It ain't him. Just get that off the, off, off the, off the, the table right now. It's not going to be Eleazar. Okay? Then he repeats the promise. Your very own son shall be your heir. Your offspring. Your descendants. And by your descendant, the implication is the descendant between you and your wife, which we're going to see a problem with in the next chapter, chapter 16. But nevertheless, this is the repeated promise. And thirdly, he expanded the promise in verse 5. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In chapter 13, he told him to look down at the dust. In chapter 22, he tells him to look to the stars and to the sand. Here he tells him to look toward the heavens, to look up. God gave Abram a visual to illustrate the promise. As the stars cannot be numbered, so too will his descendants be innumerable. One writer says, faith that conquers fear is faith in the word of God, not faith in feelings. Faith that conquers fear is faith in God's word, not in our feelings. We all have feelings. Nothing wrong with feelings. Nothing wrong with emotions. But when emotions are what rule us, when our, our feelings determine whether or not we will have fear or trust him, we are in, uh, in an unstable condition. The promises of God, the words of God are sure. And why? Because they are God's promises. The originator of the promise matters. There's some people we don't trust. And when they make you a promise, you don't trust them. And you probably are right. But when God makes a promise, he has proven himself reliable. And therefore, he can be trusted. Abram could trust God's promises no matter the timetable. And we can trust God. We can trust his word. We can trust his promises to us as well. But we need to be clear about what is a promise of God and what is not. Not everything you and I want is a promise of God. You're not promised everything you want. You're not promised every prayer that you pray will be answered with yes. Most of us have lived long enough to know that. But when we put God on the hook for a promise that he has never given to you, that's an inappropriate place to put God. We need to know what his promises are to us in order then to trust that he will fulfill them. 
It is God's words, God's promises that relieve our fears and are the foundation of our faith, which brings us to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord and counted it, he counted it to him as righteousness. John Calvin said of this verse, It is the main hinge on which religion turns. Another says it is the pillar of Christianity. Kent Hughes says that it is perhaps the most important verse in the entire Bible. And we're going to give it six minutes. Here in verse six, we find what is called the doctrine of justification by faith. It's a teaching that that the Apostle Paul picks up in the New Testament in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3. But here in Genesis chapter 15, there are three important words that we need to make sure we understand this morning. And the first is believed. Verse 6 says, and he believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord. He believed the, the Lord means he believed his word. He believed what God had said. He took God at his word. That we call faith. Abram believed the Lord. Abram had faith in the Lord. To believe means to confirm or to trust or to have faith. The word believed indicates not only a one-time belief, but a continued belief. Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But we must ask ourselves of this belief and of this faith, from where did it come? Where did Abram get his faith? Where do we get our faith? And the answer is that we get it from the Lord. It was true then and it's true now. You see, the Lord is not only only the object of our faith. He is the originator of the faith. We do not manifest faith on our own. We don't come up with the idea on our own. We don't decide, in a sense, that one day I'm just going to believe. No, God gives to us faith. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, Simon Peter, uh, excuse me, Simon Peter replied to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him and said this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The only way that you can have faith that Jesus is the Christ is that if God reveals that to you, if God gives to you the faith to believe that. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And the gift is the whole thing. It's the grace, it's the faith, it's the salvation. God gives it so there could be no sense in which we earned anything. Abram believed the Lord and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. The second word here is counted or credited to him or reckoned or accounted or imputed it to him as righteousness. Counted it, not not Abram's doing, 
It wasn't Abram's doing that was counted as righteousness. In fact, we'll find that Abram did a lot of unrighteous things, didn't he? So it's not Abram's doing that accounted as righteousness. Rather, it was faith in God that was counted as righteousness. It was faith that saved. Another theologian says, but above all, his righteousness, that's Abram's righteousness, is not the result of any accomplishment, whether of sacrifice or of acts of obedience. Rather, it is stated programmatically here that faith alone has brought Abram into a proper relationship with God, which was true for Abram and not only Abram. Throughout the scriptures, we find that same thing is true. That it is faith. It is by faith, by grace, through faith, that we are saved. Romans chapter 4 explains more of this about David, about the Gentiles, about those who are under the law. All justified. How? Through faith. One study Bible says, Before Abram had proven himself righteous by his deeds, he is counted as righteous because of his faith. Faith that God gave to him. Well, this righteousness leads us to the last word, which is righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. God counted Abram's faith to Abram as righteousness. Now, the word justification means to be declared not guilty. Biblically, justification means to be declared righteous before God. To be justified does not mean that you are righteous. It means that you are declared righteous. That God sees you as righteous. How? Because of your faith. In whom? In God, namely in Christ. And it is Christ then, it's the righteousness of Christ then that is put onto our account. No one is righteous on their own. But we are declared righteous before God. Or we could say made right with God only by God through Jesus Christ, his son. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 22. It tells us that God made him, that's Jesus, sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. That God gets our sin, that Jesus gets our sin, and we get the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't mean that you're better now. It doesn't mean that you're better than someone else. No, it means that God sees you through Christ and therefore accepts you. Or as Ephesians says, you're accepted in the beloved because of the union with Christ. So this morning we ask, do you want to be declared righteous? Do you want to know that you're right with God today? Here, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we find the day when Abram was declared righteous, when he was justified before God. And may this be your day. You must know that it is not about your doing. Romans chapter 3, verse 28 says, For we hold that that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You can't do your way into salvation. You can't act your way into salvation. 
You can't think that my good will outweigh my bad and therefore God will accept me. That's not how it works. Because here's the reality, and some of you know this about yourself, your good is never going to outweigh your bad. Sorry. But better off you know it now than later. You don't want that scale. You don't want it. No matter how good you think you are, you don't want it. Every evil thought, every intention, every motivation, you want that? You don't want that. And thanks be to God that that's not what it is. Because God looked at humanity and knew that there's no way they can do this on their own. That's the whole point of Jesus. If you can do it on your own, what do we need Jesus for? But God knew that humanity couldn't do it on their own. And in grace, he sent his son to be for us what we could not be ourselves. Live a perfect life, dying for the sins of the world that we might have life eternal by grace and through faith. It is all about what God has done for us in Christ and then responding to him in faith. Titus chapter three, verse five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can be made right with God today by grace, through faith in Christ. If you've yet to come to Christ today, that is the message for you. You can come to God today, repenting of your sins and believing on him. What does believe mean to be? Mean but to trust in him, but to trust him by faith. You can know that you too have been declared not guilty. Some of you sit here this morning and you have You've received the declaration of righteousness through Christ. You have been saved. And to you, I ask, what is the evidence, therefore, of your faith? We said that Paul writes about this connection between faith and righteousness in in his epistles. But James also writes about this in James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, he explains that faith without works... Is dead. Now, now, some take that to mean that the works are required in order to be saved. So, yeah, you got to believe, but you also got to do works. That's not what James is saying. James is saying that the, the works do not save, the faith saves, but good works rightly accompany faith. Or in the words of Martin Luther, faith alone saves. But faith that saves is never alone. So Christian, you who made profession of faith this morning and think, well, I prayed a prayer when I was eight, I'm good to go. Glad you prayed a prayer when you were eight. But what is the evidence of your your profession? Is there evidence of your profession? Because the Bible indicates to us that yes, you must believe, but evidence of the belief is works. That in fact, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are saved for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. So they do matter. Works do matter. Christian, your works matter. The only, the only objective in life is not to escape hell. We want people to escape hell. 
We want people to believe and be saved. Yes and amen. But that's not the whole story. That God has not come just to rescue people from heaven or from hell, but to prepare people for heaven. For people to live a life that honors God now and for all of eternity. May God help us this week to believe him by faith. Faith alone. And for us that do, to walk with him by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do just that today? This week. Maybe some of us, like Abram, have, have problems, have questions, have doubts, have concerns. Maybe some of us have brought them to you honestly, genuinely, and respectfully. And yet we wait God, would you encourage us today to know that the God who makes the promises keeps the promises. We can trust you for the answers. And to know that your will must be done in your way and in your time. Help us to know that today. For those who have yet to come to Christ this morning, I pray that they would understand today the work of Christ on their behalf. His death his burial and resurrection that provides salvation. Salvation from the judgment of God. Salvation to the presence of God. A relationship with you, God, that begins now and lasts forever. Would you cause them to see it? Would you cause them to have faith today to believe it? And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God.